This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Steve Williamson. About a month and a half ago, Father Brett Kroll and I took a trip to the town of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada, and we were visiting some of our friends up there in the Via Apostolica movement. And we had a great trip. And our one free day, a good friend of ours, Deacon Howard Espy, took us on a drive west out of Lethbridge and into the mountains of Alberta. It was a glorious trip for a Midwesterner, driving in the car, seeing the mountains come into view, covered in clouds, and then taking hikes on the rolling and winding paths in the woods on the bottom of the mountain. It was also just a great time together with dear brothers in the Lord, just spending time together in conversation and building friendship. I did notice early on that day that Deacon Howard had a very unusual conversational habit. And at first, it very much caught me off guard. We would be in the middle of a conversation and seemingly out of nowhere, Howard would break into spontaneous prayer. I remember we were driving down the road, don't even remember what we were talking about. The mountains are coming into view and Howard says, thank you, Lord. The heavens declare your glory and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. It was really beautiful when he did it because he has a gorgeous Scottish accent, which I practiced once or twice to see if I could imitate for you and you can be thankful that I chose not to. But I noticed that this was a habit of Howard's throughout the day. We'd be in the middle of a conversation, and all of a sudden, he'd be praying out loud, uh, often quoting scripture directly. And what at first caught me off guard became something I deeply wanted to participate in. And towards the end of the day, we were walking down a path and looking at the lake at the bottom of the mountain, seeing the trees and the birds in the air and the ducks on the water, And Brett and Howard and I just together broke into prayer and praise to the Lord for what he had done in creation and what he had done in our lives. I walked away from that day thinking Howard had imbibed the words of Scripture on such a deep level that they filled his thoughts and his prayers and his conversation. By the end of the day, I had a deep desire within me to have that kind of prayer life and that kind of walk with the Lord. So today we start our summer series on the Psalms. And the Psalms are different, aren't they? They're not primarily a narrative, although several of the Psalms tell us stories. And they're not primarily instruction, although we have plenty to learn from the Psalms. They're a beautiful book of poetry and a powerful book of prophecy. But first and foremost, the book of Psalms is a book of prayer and worship. The Psalms are a prayer book. And so we approach them in a posture of prayer and worship. But the Psalms are not just any prayer book. They're the curated prayer book of the nation of Israel. And they prayed these prayers, and they read them, and they sang them in their homes, in their synagogues, and in their temple. Which means, of course, that the Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. They were the prayers that he prayed and that he sang. 
Did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament? In his book, A Case for the Psalms, theologian N.T. Wright says this, what Jesus believed and understood about his own identity and vocation, he believed and understood within a psalm-shaped world. Jesus lived in a psalm-shaped world. And that's my prayer for us this summer, that we would not just be learners of the psalms, but that we would be prayers of the psalms, that, like Jesus, we would come to live more and more in a psalm-shaped world. Well, Psalm 1 is a perfect place to start because it's a prayer all about how to pray. It's often referred to as a wisdom psalm, and wisdom literature in the Bible provides guidance, and it sometimes does this by presenting two divergent paths. And that's what we see here in Psalm 1. There's the path of the righteous, and then there's the path of the ungodly. There's the path of blessing and the path that leads away from that blessing. So as we look at Psalm 1 this morning, I'd like us to consider these two main questions. What is at the root of a blessed life? And what are the results of a blessed life? What's at the root of a blessed life? And what are the results of a blessed life? The book of Psalms starts with a benediction, a blessing. Blessed or blessed is the man. As I mentioned, the Psalms are a curated collection of prayers. And Psalms 1 and 2 were intentionally put at the beginning as a type of introduction to the prayers. And here, right at the beginning of all the Psalms in Psalm 1, we have this blessing, this benediction. That word, blessed, it's sometimes been translated happy. But the word happy for us often is directly connected to our current feelings and circumstances. And it's very fleeting. It can be very fickle. So the word blessed here, blessed, it goes much deeper than just momentary happiness. It's a joy, it's a happiness regardless of circumstances. It's an internal and eternal happiness or joy. Blessed. One translator says that a full translation of that word could be, oh, the heavenly blessing." So the goal of all the Psalms is set right at the beginning. The Lord's blessing, his benediction. And now, in Psalm 1, the paths are laid out. One towards that blessing, but first, one away from it. Blessed is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and has not sat in the seat of the scornful. Verse 1 tells us what the path of blessing is not. And there's three stages, and they get progressively worse on this path of the ungodly. 
First, we see this person walking in the counsel of the ungodly. This is the general state of those who are moving through life without guidance of the Lord and who are therefore susceptible to all the surrounding influences. Their culture, the wisdom of the age, is their only guide. And before they know it, they've stopped and they're standing in the way of sinners. They've stopped to consider the way of those who are either ignorantly or perhaps intentionally disobeying the Lord. And then finally, they take their place and they end up sitting in the seat of scoffers, signifying that they have now chosen to be identified with those who are in direct opposition to God. Notice how the path of the ungodly is subtle and slippery. I think the enemy loves it this way, this slow and deceptive pull that starts with seemingly harmless advice and ends up in a position of direct opposition to God. In our culture, we take in food, information, and opinions at an incredible rate. We would do well to stop and take inventory of what or who is giving us counsel. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 2, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Often, it's exactly what we delight in that is the source of our counsel. What do you delight in? Where are you taking counsel? Is it the law of the Lord? The psalmist says the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. That word law specifically refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures given to Moses and the people of Israel after they crossed the Red Sea. But it also has a more general sense of the word instruction. God's scriptures, his holy word. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, his word. And on his law will he meditate day and night. Okay, so we could spend a whole sermon, we could take a whole series of teachings on this idea of meditation. In fact, we have an entire ministry in our diocese led by Deacon Valerie McIntyre that's all about meditating on the scriptures. And if this term meditation or meditating on scriptures is new to you, there are several resources, there are several books you could read just to start that journey. And you could certainly talk to a pastor and, and learn about some of those resources. But just a few ideas this morning on this idea of meditating on God's word. It's certainly more than just 
reading or agreeing with Scripture. That word, translated meditate, has a connotation of muttering, of speaking out loud. So one very simple way to start the journey of meditating on Scripture would be to memorize some Scripture. I think it'd be particularly good in our culture. Studies have shown that we're getting way worse at memorizing information. Have you ever been in a conversation like this with a group of people where there's some piece of information, be it uh, the name of a famous person, the definition of a word, a historical fact, and no one knows the answer, so all of a sudden there's a race and everyone whips out their smartphone to see who can find the answer first. Well, studies have shown that looking up the answer on your smartphone produces the same chemical reaction, the same reward as if you actually knew the information. That one kind of creeps me out. (laughs) Why take anything in if you've got a portable brain that you can just keep in your back pocket? So step one, meditation. Memorize scripture. Perhaps this summer, you could just memorize a psalm. It's a great place to start. The psalms are so wonderful to memorize because of their poetic nature, and they're often pretty short. So maybe Psalm 1. The idea is that you ruminate, you think on, you take it in until it starts naturally coming out of you. Music is also an incredible resource when it comes to learning and internalizing Scripture. As someone who's led worship and directed choirs for many years, pretty much any psalm I read has at least one, if not multiple, tunes associated with it. Music can be a very rich resource for taking in and meditating on God's Word. The basic idea with meditation is to start taking in Scripture until it naturally starts coming out of you. You reflect on it during a walk. You write on it in a journal. You start turning God's Word, His Scripture, into your own prayers. Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Prayer, takes up an idea that was well-known in the early church when he says that, Meditation is spiritually tasting the scripture, delighting in it, sensing the sweetness of the teaching, feeling the conviction of what it tells us about ourselves, and thanking God and praising God for what it shows us about him. So meditation is a slow process. It involves taking scripture in until you get the sense of tasting it. There's this beautiful collect that the priest reads once a year in our liturgy, asking that the Lord would help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. That's a picture of meditation. The psalmist creates a picture of what it looks like to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night in verses 3 and 4. And he shall be like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also shall not wither. And look, whatever he does, it shall prosper. 
So if we take this picture and apply it to what we learned in verse 2, there's obvious corollaries. The tree represents the man, the blessed man. The water represents the scriptures, God's law. And the tree has been planted right by the waterside. So perhaps an obvious question, but where's the connection between the tree and the water? How does the water get to the tree that's planted beside the water? Well, there's a very, very similar verse in the prophet Jeremiah in the 17th chapter, where he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The roots are what connect the tree to the water. So back to the original question, what is at the root of a blessed life? A blessed life is rooted in the fertile soil of consistent scripture and prayer. The roots are underground. They're unseen. And so much of what makes for a healthy Christian life is unseen and hidden, isn't it? Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The world does not see what you do every night before you go to bed. The world doesn't see the first thing you do every morning when you wake up. A blessed life is rooted in the fertile soil of consistent scripture and prayer, delighting in it, meditating on God's word day and night, taking it in until it starts to come out of you. Which leads us to our second question. What are the results of a blessed life? Well, eventually, what we are taking in does start to come out. The root system is below the surface, but there's evidence above the surface that can tell us about what's going on below. The psalmist here says, a healthy tree produces fruit in due season, and its leaves do not wither. So this healthy root system will help this tree persevere in the hard seasons, and it will produce fruit in the harvest seasons. So I'll offer that up as the answer to the second question. What does the blessed life, the blessed person look like? They persevere through the hard seasons and they produce fruit in the harvest seasons. They persevere because not every season is a harvest season. There are dark and cold winters, and there are dry, hot summers. But the supply of water and nutrients in the soil keeps the leaves flourishing, 
regardless of what's happening above ground. The world may try to tell you that you can and should attempt to avoid suffering. But our lives, this side of eternity, will involve hardships. It will involve disappointments, sickness, death, perhaps even persecution. Make sure your roots go deep. If anybody has ever told you that suffering is a, an indication that there is no God or that God has abandoned you, I want to say to you, that's the counsel of the ungodly. Scripture is clear that God's promise is not about our current circumstances. His promise of blessing is an internal and eternal blessing. In fact, we see over the course of the summer, as we study the Psalms, we will see that the Psalms are very familiar with this idea of suffering. Within this prayer book, we are given a prayer language for crying out to God, for making our complaints and calling upon his mercy. The psalmist would encourage us in the hard seasons to keep sending the roots deeper into the fertile soil of scripture and prayer. And the leaves, they will stay green and the harvest will come. So leaves provide shade. They welcome others in. The person with deep roots has an uncanny ability to welcome, love, and minister to others even through their hard seasons. I personally know so many people like this at resurrection. But the healthy tree also produces fruit in the harvest season. Whereas leaves provide shade and shelter, fruit is meant to be given away. So my parents have had the same couch in their living room for a long time. They really need a new couch, actually. Um, but there's this one seat on the couch on the left side, and it's got a groove like this. And the groove is there because every single morning and every single evening, that's where my mom sits and reads the Bible and prays. But if any of you have met my mom, you also know that she cannot help but talk about the Bible. And she has given a great amount of her time and energy in her adult life for teaching the Bible. What is the fruit we have to give away to the next generation, to the poor and needy, to those who don't know the Lord. Fruit is meant to be given away. The psalmist continues in chapter, in verse 5. As for the ungodly, it is not so with them, but they are like the chaff which the wind scatters away from the face of the earth. So the image created here is one about the wheat harvest. And 
What the harvester would do is he would take a threshing sledge and he would hit the wheat and then he would take it to a breezy area and he would take his, um, what are they called? The winnowing fork and he would throw the wheat, har- the wheat grain up into the air and the chaff, which had been broken up, which is lighter than the wheat, would be blown away and the heavier wheat grain would fall back to the ground. The wheat and the chaff are separated. John the Baptist picks up on this image in the Gospel of Matthew describing Jesus. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's an ultimate separation between the two paths, between the wheat and the chaff. And the psalmist continues with this in verses 6 and 7. Therefore the ungodly shall not be able to stand in the judgment, neither the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the the ungodly will perish. God has an ultimate plan to separate the wheat from the chaff. But that hasn't happened yet. And as I read and pray through Psalm 1, I'm aware of something that's pretty obvious. I'm so prone to stray from the path of the righteous and to hop back on the path of the ungodly. Who among us could claim to always reflect this image of the Psalm 1 tree in our lives? There's a gap between God's perfect word and my sinful human desires between his word and my flesh. And so we say, thanks be to God for Jesus, the word made flesh, who reconciles this difference. The church sees Jesus as the Psalm 1 tree. St. Augustine said, Christ most certainly came in the way of sinners by being born as sinners are, but he did not stand in it, for worldly allurement did not hold him. Jesus is the man. I don't just mean that in the hip way that the cool kids like to say, Jesus is the man. Jesus is the Psalm 1 man. He's the perfect man, the perfect tree, the blessed man. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is the perfect tree, but he is also the everlasting source of life. He's the perfect tree. He's our model of delighting in the law of the Lord. Do you remember how much Jesus had taken in scriptures in the gospels? Do you remember his temptation in the wilderness where every challenge brought to him by Satan, he responded with direct quotations of scripture? Do you remember that he meditated on the scriptures day and night? The Gospel of Luke tells us that he would often go off to quiet places and pray. And that he went to a mountainside and prayed all night. And in due season, through great suffering, Jesus bore the ultimate and eternal fruit of victory over sin and death, becoming for us 
the everlasting source of life. Jesus, the Word made flesh, the God-man, as St. Augustine referred to him, by his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and by the gift of his Holy Spirit, has reconciled our sinful humanity and his perfect law. The tree and the streams of water have been brought together. Jesus said in John's gospel that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Or did you hear in our reading from Galatians today that as many of you that have been baptized have put on Christ? Jesus is the perfect tree and the everlasting source of life. So this summer, as we enter together the psalm-shaped world of Jesus, let us take delight in God's life giving word and let us meditate on Jesus, the word made flesh who has bestowed upon all who believe in him God's internal and eternal benediction and his heavenly blessing. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.